Vela News Podcast is back. And this week, we are brought to you by our good friends at Pactimo. Pactimo makes some of the best cycling apparel out there. And this year, Pactimo has been sponsoring Spencer and Chris on their gravel odyssey to do some of the cool gravel and mountain bike races out there. Uh, Pactimo's Summit Stratos 12-hour bibs are designed specifically for ultra endurance events like the Dirty Kanza, and it's the ideal choice for those who want guaranteed comfort over extreme distances and demanding terrain. Both Chris and Spencer wore the 12-hour bibs at uh, their gravel race. Spencer is going to be wearing it at the upcoming Dirty Kanza, so he's going to give a real test to see if it does actually last for 12 hours because 12, 13 hours, that's kind of the time frame that I'm guessing for old Spencer to finish at Dirty Kanza. Uh, these bibs, they're not only supremely comfortable, but they are remarkably durable, extremely lightweight, and feature the Cytec chamois that is uniquely engineered in accordance with Pactimo's strict specifications for ultra long distance pad. The thing is, you guys know, when you're on your bike, for what, six, seven, eight, nine hours, it can get a little raw down there. So. Check out Pactimo's new 12-hour bibs. Thanks to Pactimo for sponsoring our gravel series and for sponsoring this week's episode of the Velo News Podcast. Okay, let's get on with the show. Uh, welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. I am Fred Dreyer. Here again in the depths of the Velo News World Headquarters in Boulder, Colorado. It's a soupy day outside, guys. It's supposed to snow tonight, which is a little strange. For the middle of May, um, I just got back from a very busy week out at the Amgen Tour of California, where I was reporting on both the men's and women's races. We're going to talk all about that a little bit later. Uh, but first, we need to talk Giro d'Italia. Then we're going to talk Amgen Tour of California. And the final back half of the show, I have a great interview with Lindsay Goldman. Uh, Lindsay is a racer and the co-owner and co-founder of the Hoggins Berman Supermit team, which is a UCI women's racing team. Uh, Lindsay and I had a really interesting conversation about some of the, to the topics of equality in women's cycling. And Lindsay has a really interesting perspective on how to grow women's cycling and how not to grow women's cycling. And so we're going to catch up with Lindsay then. So without further ado, I say we talk about the Giro d'Italia first. And joining me to talk Giro is the man, the myth, the legend, Andrew Hood, who is on the ground in Italy right now. Uh, Andy, before we get to talking about the action of the race, uh, you've been doing a good job slaying it on social media with posting images of your uh, your various hotel rooms and some of the bare bones uh, accommodations they have this year. What, what, what can you say about your living situation so far, Andy? Are you Are you still happy? Are you still with us? What's going on? Oh, Fred. Yeah, it's been a, it's been an interesting Giro in more ways than one. We've been going just basically from one kind of, you know, it, it's like Italy is the place where hotels go to die. It seems like it's uh, they they were all built back in the boom, the boom years of Italy, you know, back in the 60s, 70s and 80s when Italy was, you know, had the Italian miracle, they call it. And man, they haven't built a hotel since then, at least not the ones we're staying in. Yeah, it looks like you've been on basically like the pull-out couch bed pretty much every single night or the typical European um, like uh, double bed only f built for someone who's about five foot five and maybe 127 pounds. 
<laughs> yeah, I figure it's about right. I mean, and, and and the worst part of it is, you know, we're out in the out kind of in the industrial outskirts of towns. You know, we're not in these historic centers where, you know, it evokes that pure Italian feeling and that Giro vibe. You know, we're out in some scruffy little, you know, the suburbs. Like you know, in Europe, it's different. Like the suburbs are where you don't want to live, and that's where our hotels have been so far. But you know, you just keep on rolling. Hopefully, one night we'll uh, have a Giro miracle. <laughs> oh, praying for a Giro miracle. That's what we're doing right now. Well, after nine stages of the Giro d'Italia, the picture of the race is starting to take shape. Right now in the leader spot, we have Valerio Conti of UAE Tame Emirates, who got into that spot after Primoz Roglic, the winner of stage one, surrendered the pink jersey, which I think was a smart move. But really, the picture has to do with Roglic and some of the other favorites. So Roglic is in second place overall, but you, boy, you start to look down the list and uh, Vincenzo Nibali, top favorite, is next. He's more than a minute and 20 down. Belka Molema's in there, but you know, some of these other guys, it's like Simon Yates lost a lot of time in the individual time trial. Dutch wonder Tom Dumoulin has been completely wiped off the board because he abandoned the race. So Hoodie, when you look at the Giro GC picture right now, what are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, we were all hoping for a dynamic, wide open GC race, right? We had Bernal coming. Oops, Bernal didn't even start. We had Tom Dumoulin who decided to race the Giro because it was packed with these time trials. He crashed out in uh, the first couple of days of racing. So we've had uh, Roglic really emerge as the really the big favorite so far. But the big buzz, really, Fred, is, you know, we haven't really climbed one mountain. We've had a few lumpy stages across the Apennine there with uh, the stage to L'Aquila and so you know, we've had a few little climbs, but nothing really to test these guys, right? So we're waiting, 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 we're still waiting for the mountains. And they don't come until Friday. We have another three or four days of uh, two more, fl- today is the rest day, two more flat sprint, flat sprint stages. And then we have kind of a little aperitivi on Thursday. And then finally, 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 Friday, we have a real climb and we can start to see who might have the legs to win this because as you just pointed out, some big names have lost some time. Simon Yates was the big disappointment yesterday in the time trial. Um, Nibali's still there. Nibali is the danger man. I think the Giro organizers are actually maybe one uh, maybe hoping that they could get to the uh, mountains, maybe maybe even like late May or even June, because, boy, I've been seeing some of these photos floating around the Internet of what the top of the Paso Gavia looks like right now. And it looks like 20 foot snow drifts with the road just kind of carved out through it. It looks like it looks like the ice planet Hoth from the Star Wars movies with um, just, you know, huge piles of snow and ice everywhere, maybe expecting to see like a polar bear strolling across the road at some point uh have people been talking about this i mean are people prepared to race um in the middle of like a 20 foot tall pile of snow on each side hoodie yeah yeah i mean it's, it was a big snow year this year in northern italy i mean sometimes the snow hits up in the gavia sometimes it doesn't but this year they really got hammered up in, up in those uh, high mountains in northern italy so you know the big the big question mark now is if they have to take the Gavi out. And there's even some question mark about the, really the first major summit finale on Friday up to Lago Seru, which is kind of on the Italian outside of, of the mountains here. There's quite a bit of snow over there even. They're doing a pretty good job of clearing out the roads. But the big question mark is, you know, if they have to take some of these big climbs out, what kind of impact is that going to have on the GC race? Because you have 
all the GC favorites who want to attack in the mountains waiting for these stages to make their move. And if they're yanked out of the race due to weather, you know, that's going to have a major impact on how the race plays out. But some people were talking uh, earlier this week, you know, now the, the chances are, you know, if, if the conditions are bad, they'll, they'll correctly pull, pull the, uh, the Gavi out or maybe some of the other climbs. But man, people were saying, you know, today that's the way the world is. If it's considered too dangerous and it is, they, they take the, these climbs out. But that means you don't see those epic battles in the past, like Bernard Hinault winning Liège, Bastogne Liège in the snow, or, or Andy Hampson, you know, racing over the Gavia. I mean, those are images, I think, in cycling history that we might not see anymore because the way the concern is for for the health of the riders. Uh, I say they go for it because I would love nothing more than to see uh, Simon Yates dodging like abominable snowmen on top of the Gavia, and perhaps, uh, like I said, polar bears, um, Arctic wolves, some of the other high altitude snow. No creatures that are no doubt like burrowing out from those twenty foot snow drifts. Um, no, they probably they should probably do the right thing and take it out. But I gotta say, like just the just the visuals of the peloton rolling up through these twenty foot high snow drifts. I think that would uh, that would be a postcard that the Giro d'Italia could definitely send around for years and years to come. Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that's still a few days away. I think they're up there working pretty hard. I don't think the official decision has been made yet exactly what they would do, especially on the Gavia stage, because there was some speculation they could they could do two passages over the Mortirolo instead of the Gavia Mortirolo <laughs> combination. And I was asking a few of the guys, I'm like, what's worse, the Gavia and the Mortirolo, or dose uh, two times over the uh, Mortirolo? And it's like, man, give me the Gavia any day. <laughs> twice over the Bartarello. Ouch. So that speaks to another storyline that you have done a great job of covering through this opening week of the Giro, which is just that, oh boy, long stages, bad weather, lots of rain, crashes. You know, before the race even began, Hoodie, you wrote a great piece for the magazine, our annual Giro d'Italia guide, about how the unpredictable conditions in Italy often shape the race. And it just seems like this is another year of that. So what's the mood of the Peloton right now like with these long stages and with all the rain and crashing? Yeah, I think everyone's at their wits end, to tell the truth, because these long stages, I mean, one factor, the reason why I think some of these long stages are packed in this first week that we had, we've had five stages over more than longer than 200 kilometers, which by today's standards, pretty long because, uh, you know, we've seen that trend over the last uh, decade or so of the Grand Tours kind of shortening the stages, bringing in that kind of shorter dynamic. And most of the riders uh, across the peloton have been doing some polling. And, uh, you know, they prefer a shorter stage simply because uh, I think that everyone agrees that a shorter stage means a harder raced stage in the sense that they're going to be riding harder and faster without having to kind of measure out their efforts so much. So I think there's some frustration there. It's like, yeah, we're kind of just going through the motions almost. But the expectation is that extra hour every day, you know, racing six, six and a half hours every day, as opposed to say four and a half to five, that will kind of take its toll at the sharp end of this Giro. We'll see because everyone basically has done the same race. And is the race more exciting for it? Right now, people are saying no. People, even the riders are agreeing that, man, this Giro has really kind of missed some of those early exclamation marks that we've seen. It, you know, and, and really the recent editions of the Giro. But I think another factor why I think that the course is designed the way it is, is that it starts in Italy this year. Over the past uh, decade or so, we've seen the Giro start in foreign countries every other year. Last year was uh, Israel. They've started in Denmark. They started in uh, Northern uh, Ireland. So when they have these uh, foreign starts, they're bringing in 
two or three days plus a long transfer day into that first week, knocking out a few days of racing and then easing into the uh, into the distance of the stages. So you don't really get those hard stages to the end of the Giro, whereas this year they're just like whacking the guys right over the head. Okay, 239Ks. Let's go, boys. <laughs> I love it that uh, in lieu of the brutality of maybe a, an international travel day or you know some terrible transfer uh, that takes five or six hours, they're just saying, okay, we're going to hit you in the legs with 200K over and over again. I mean, I wonder what this does to the Giro spot within the international peloton because you know the Giro has has sort of zigged when everyone else is zagging with the Tour de France and the Vuelta having shorter, punchier stages and the Giro has said, no, we can, you know, maintain our spot as the hardest Grand Tour by having these long, long stage races. And, you know, we hear grumbles from the riders every now and again at the Giro, but this year it really seems like with the long stages plus the crappy weather, um, you know, I wonder if that's going to turn the tide at all. When I was at UAE tour asking riders about their favorite Grand Tour, every, most all of them said the Giro d'Italia because of all oh, the roads and the food hotels, you know, all those sort of intangibles. But I just I wonder if this year is going to sway people's opinions about how much they love the Giro. I, I don't think so. I think that uh, the Giro has its draw. I think people they still love the race. I think there's some, just some grumbling going around based on kind of what's happening this year, which is, especially the weather has not been good. I mean, we've had, you know, typically we're down here in, in this middle southern part of the boot. You know, we haven't gone all the way down to Reggio Calabria, but, but we've been around Rome and down almost to Naples before we turned left. And, uh, you know, all the locals were going, man, this is like really cold weather. And I think, uh, aren't you guys skiing powder back in Colorado right now anyway? <laughs> yeah, we're supposed to get snow tonight. So uh, I may play hooky tomorrow and go uh, shred the pow, man. No, I can't do that. We have way too much here going on. But, yeah, we still have the ski areas open. It's still snowing. Um, so, I mean, you know, just it's just, just, just it's no big deal. Come uh, ride in the Colorado Rockies in May. You'll get, you'll get prepared for the Giro. So, Hoodie, a question that I have for you is, you know, Tom Dumoulin, we saw him go out with the crash. Um, what are people ta- saying about how that impacts the overall race? Yeah, I think it took a big hole out of the GC, really, because it was the rider who had the same kind of profile that Roglic was bringing to the table, but a rider who had the experience of winning a Grand Tour. Without Dumoulin, now you're just seeing Roglic taking this pretty commanding lead, really, against some of his uh, the most direct rivals he has. And, you know, how that's going to change the race, you'll have to see. Well, everyone now clearly has to attack. But without having Dumoulin there, I think that uh, it, it could mean that everyone now is going to gang up on Roglic because, the, you know, there's a lot of kind of chatter going around that Roglic remains really untested in the third week of a Grand Tour, leading a Grand Tour for the first time. He's been very good all spring. So the question is, you know, will he kind of run out of gas in that third week? His team is another question mark as well. He has um, he lost Lawrence de Plus. The other day, just to kind of a sickness, Robert Haysink uh, was unable to start. They brought in Sepp Kuss, our favorite uh, Colorado boy, riding in the Giro. But a lot of these the, the, the support riders that Roglic has are pretty young. I mean, uh, Bauman, uh, Roglic, and, and Tolhuk, you know, they just are uh, – Sepp, they don't have the experience. Like Astana stack by Rod brings experienced teams. 
uh, you know, they're going to be throwing it against Roglic, so it's going to be a real dogfight in that last week. I'm with you. I think it's going to be a compelling battle. Before the race started, I tapped Roglic to win. I had a great column sketched out in my brain. I was going to write. It's going to be dazzling people on the site with my amazing analysis of why Roglic is the champion of all champions. And then I just didn't write it, Hoodie. Just didn't write it. Uh, oh, you should have. You should have. <laughs> yeah. So I'm here belatedly to say, oh, I knew I knew beforehand that Roglic uh, was going to be the favorite. And, and here's the well, thing is that I was at UAE Tour and then saw him at Tirreno. And what I like about Roglic is that the guy gives no quarter. He is – um, he's smart. He's strong, but he doesn't. He, he gives zero gifts. So at UAE Tour, you know, he he led wire to wire, and on the last stage, he didn't have to win it. Um, he just could have like crossed the line if he needed to. And Dom Dumoulin went for the stage win. Some other guys went for the stage win, and Roglic just went no. Bam! Shut the door. Won the stage. We, we saw that at Roman D, and then at Tirreno too, where Roglic is not afraid to like flex. And to be, um, you know, he's like a little like a Daenerys Targaryen from the Game of Thrones where he's just flaming people left and right. But I'm with you. I, I don't know what that means in week three. Uh, the Tour de France last year, we saw Roglic go really well in week three and win a stage. And then he did the individual time trial. And look, he was not bad, but he just wasn't as good as Dumoulin, Froome, and Garrett Thomas. I asked him about that at, uh, at UAE Tour. Like, hey, Primo's, you know, like, eh, that final time trial, you, you know, you, you, you lost your third place in the overall. And he looks at me and goes, yes, but I was fourth place. That's not bad. Come on. You know, <laughs> like, a, what do you want, guy? Like. It's not that bad, but um, I- I'm with you. That's going to that's really going to be a question in this Giro because that final week is so mountainous, and because the guys that Roglic is sh- are, is going up against are just awesome climbers, especially in Simon Yates. So you know Yates is three minutes and change down, but hey, it's the Giro. We've seen weirder stuff happen uh, than a guy coming back from three minutes down in the overall in the final week of this race. Well, what, what plays really into Roglic's hand, though, is that, that Giro ends this year in a time trial, 17Ks. Uh, we saw him take two seconds plus on everyone in both time trials. But I know at the end of it, at the end of a Grand Tour, it's all about who has the legs more so than the specialists. But man, Roglic, he looks good on the time trial bike, doesn't he? He's got that perfect position, so efficient and so powerful. And you're right, man. I'm I'm calling uh, Roglic the silent assassin. This guy comes in, doesn't say much. You know, he's he's a uh, He's not too flamboyant on the old press conferences, Fred. Let's put it that no, way. No, he's not. Uh, <laughs> we, have, we have some of the journalists rolling their eyes in these press conferences going, man, it's going to be a long zero if we have uh, Rivlitz up there every day. Given, you know, we're trying to get something. Because you know, journalists, we want – we want like Nibali is good. Nibali, he'll say stuff. You know, Mikel Landa will say stuff. Even Simon Yates, you know, he's coming out of his shell. He's, you know, had that famous quote before the start of this of this uh, jury. He said, well, my rivals would be, you know, quote, you know, pooping themselves in the pants based on how good a form I have. Rubwitz does not say anything. So, but he, he says it all on the bike and he, he is looking in the driver's seat right now. So the question is, I mean, it's like, um, you know, can Nibali do it? Is Nibali is looking very, very good. But Nibali is much older than Roglic. And Yates, what a collapse yesterday he had. I mean, he was coming in. He was only about 10 seconds down on Roglic in the first time split on the flats. But it turned out that because it was raining, it was really raining very hard for all the favorites yesterday, that uh, Roglic decided not to take any risk. Because the original plan for Roglic was to hammer the flats and then hold his margin up to climb. And they had to improvise yesterday and say, take no risk in the flats because it was very technical. A lot of uh, roundabouts and corners that they said no risk at all. So the splits were quite close on that first half of that time trial. And then he put the afterburners on on the climb. 
Silent Assassin, indeed. I, I will say to fans and uh, listeners, the one thing that Roglic does say is he starts many of his answers with the phrase, it is true. Uh, as some riders, as some people who watch these post-race interviews will notice with the non-English speaking riders, a lot of times they will have a phrase that they say at the beginning of the answer to sort of let them collect their thoughts. I know that Peter Sagan used to say, it is normal a lot. Actually, a lot of the riders do just as a rule of thumb. I do too. Sometimes I'll just say so. I know Rowan Dennis says, look, you know, look, the Chiro is a long race. I got to go for it. And I love that Rogan says, in, in, Valverde, in, in Valverde says, venga, venga, venga. <laughs> oh, I'm going to start all my podcasts out with Vega, Vega, Vega. Well, we have lots of questions left unanswered at the Giro d'Italia. Will there be a swarm of Yetis on the top of the Gavia that descends on the Peloton and throws snowballs at them? Uh, will Primoz Roglic be able to swat away Vincenzo Nibali, Simon Yates, and the other GC threats? And will Andy Hood's accommodations improve, or will they continue along their uh, mediocre and subpar consistency through the last two weeks of this Giro. Lots of questions left unanswered. Indeed, indeed. Uh, you know, the magic is coming in this in this Giro. As we all know, the, the Giro always delivers some big surprise. And I would not be surprised at all if, if Roglic did have some sort of late Giro crack. You know, oftentimes uh, a first time being in this position really puts a lot of pressure on a rider, more so than people can really uh, can imagine. You know, we saw Dumoulin's crack a few years ago with the Vuelta España you know, it took him a couple of years to come back before he could win that Giro in 2017. But if Roglic can actually hang on and win this thing, you know, perhaps we're seeing the emergence of really the next major Grand Tour rider because he has the full package. He can he can time trial with the best of them and climb very very well. So this could be the dawning. I mean, of the of the Roglic era. We shall see. Before we talk about the Tour of California hoodie, you recently caught up with Brent Bookwalter out there at the race. Brent is one of the star domestiques for Simon Yates. So uh, let's check in with Brent Bookwalter, see how the Giro's going for him. Does, uh, does it, your job change so much going from one team to the other? It's basically kind of the same role. I'd say it's a similar role, but I'd say how, how it's approached is different. One of the things I'm enjoying here is the team is very strategic with how they're using our resources um, and placing it. And... Um, it's nice. The, the clarity with that is really nice, but that also brings like an extra level of accountability. Um, so we have pretty clear expectations and zones, um, which is really good to have. But then when it's time for your time to be there, you better be there. You better be there. Yeah, not, not a lot of gray area. It's not as, um, yeah, I view that as a little more like a yeah, new school way of doing it. The old school way is kind of saying everyone take care of these guys and two guys take it easy. Um, but here it's quite dissected and um, specific. Where are you in the hierarchy when you get into the mountains of where you um, so. Yeah, I don't even, I don't, I'm not really sure. Like, right now, there's not a whole lot of hierarchy. Um, these first three days, it's really um, myself and Jack Bauer who are on, like, early duty, at like kilometer zero up until when things start really kicking off. Um which is a pretty unglorious job because you don't you don't catch a lot of nice TV time up there in the finish. Where, but um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, nice yeah. at the back of the finish. But um, but no, I'm enjoying that, and we have really good guys to, to pick up the reins when um, when Jack and I are done. And I think that, um, as I understand, will sort of change and ebb and flow throughout the race. So um, yeah, right now it's a it's a long hard duty for most of the day, and then if I get a chance in the finishes, just try to bank a little bit of energy here and there. So this whole team is for Simon. I mean, you guys are it's fully for Simon, and yeah, in fact, that that was a, that's a little bit of the of the change too. Even um, it showed through in the in the first TT. You know, it's 
in, in past Grand Tours, the first GTs, I've raced with some great GC guys, um, and the focus is for them in the race, but there's still lots of individual performances happening. Um, and here, you know, we weren't dissuaded from, from giving it a good personal performance, but it was very clear that the energy that we put forth um, collectively, rider staff, it was really about getting Simon ready, and I think that's gonna um, I think that's gonna prove prove fruitful in the long term of the three weeks. Just always having that mind for him and not having guys who are sort of head in the back of their mind, you know, sneaking sneaking a chance here and there. No pressure to maybe get points. Or no, points. exactly. There is none. There is none at all. Yeah, um, yeah, which is great. So eyes on the prize and pretty unified. Now the uh, having uh, Roglic in in pink right now, it's not probably ideal for you guys. I mean, you guys just staying right where you are all the way going into that second time trial. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't. We're not too fussed about who's in the lead right now. I think, yeah, looking mindfully towards uh, Verona at the end of the three weeks and just chipping off one day at a time. Um, but, yeah, he's, you know, he's obviously a threat. And I know there's a lot of talk about hype about keeping it the whole way or keeping it the first week, and you're definitely capable of that. You look at these stages and you look at where where rivals have a chance to distance him. There's not a whole lot of chances until we get to, like, yeah, stage 13, 14. Mm. And these, these long flat stages, uh, like yesterday, today, what do they add to a Grand Tour, and what do they kind of take away, do you think? Oh, yeah, um, they definitely add fatigue into our legs and our minds. Uh, it's a lot of time to be on alert and be high-stress and um, attentive. Um, I think they give a chance to, you know, some of these smaller teams to sort of fly the flag, go off early. Um, and then, you know, they reward the risk takers too. I think we always see in the Giro, there's a stage in the first week that you think is going to be a sprint and then um, a breakaway group uncorks it. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, maybe sometimes they're a little long and they can get a little drum drum through the middle of it. Um, a little boring to watch, but um, it is somewhat in the Giro's identity. And yeah, that's what we're doing right at the Giro. And do you, how, how much do you feel bad into the third week going that. Yeah, definitely, definitely feel that. Yeah, it's um, it's a lot different. You know, even there were guys joking around how yesterday portions were pretty easy, but you know, you look at the energy expenditure that we did over the you know five and a half hours, and it's big. And even if you know we're all really trained, we're all showing up fresh, fit, and really good shape. Even if you don't feel it, um, last night going to bed or waking up this morning, that starts to add up. This first week is long. You know, it's um, it's nine days before we get a rest day, and that's longer than any really individual one week you know stage race we do all year. So that uh, that really really goes a long way to sort of um you know nail us down and pin us down and then the profile only gets harder thanks for the time always good to hear from old brent bookwalter at the giro uh, i've been following him on social media it looks pretty rainy and hard uh so hoodie you know i'm back from the tour of california this is your opportunity to just grill me with questions about uh about what i learned from seven days of racing in the california sunshine what do you got for me Indeed, Fred. Let's turn the tables here a little bit. You know, of all, of all the races on the World Tour, I think the Tour of California is one of the few I have never covered. I mean, I think it's the, uh, what, it's the 14th year now of the Tour of California? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, I remember when the, when the race first started, you know, it used to be back there in February, early in the season. It was always a, a big event on the U.S. calendar. I know there's been some changes with now that it is a world tour event that some of the American teams obviously cannot get in there anymore. What, what's kind of uh, what's, what's your uh, parachute view of uh, what it's like looking at the tour of California? Yeah. I mean, when it went to world tour for, I believe 2017, that shut the door on the continental level domestic teams to be able to raise. And I wrote a column about this this past week about how boy, in the old days of the tour of California, it used to be really fun to chart the progress of the continental riders. You'd always want to see who was the top Continental Rider and GC, 
did one of them get in the top 10, top 20? You'd always watch these poor continental guys in the breakaway, these doomed early breakaways as they tried to make it. And really, it was always fun to chart the success of the continental team. So in 2017, when I went to World Tour, that closed the door on Conti teams, opened the door for pro Conti teams, which led to a number of American teams deciding to go to pro Conti, uh, the Hincapie team, Rally UHC, uh, Hoggins Berman Action, et cetera, so they could get into the race. Now, the motivations of these teams has actually changed somewhat since they've gone pro Conti at the Tour of California. It used to be it was all just about exposure, just like, hey, get in the early breakaway, get some TV time for your sponsor, maybe try to make a name for yourself in the GC so you could potentially get a job in the World Tour team. And that to a certain degree, still exists. USA Cycling fielded a composite team of continental riders this year, and they were very aggressive getting in the breakaways. And I think they were doing so to, to really try and catch the eye of World Tour teams, prove themselves, try to learn something from what it's like to race with World Tour guys. But it's really different for Rally, who used to be uh, K Kelly Benefits. And you know, over the years, they've won stage this year. They've won the KOM jersey. And this year, they really did come in wanting to do a good GC ride. Didn't really happen for them. Uh, Brandon McNulty, their star, was uh, coming back from a pretty bad flu that he got after winning the Tour of Sicily. They backed Rob Britton. Britton did a good ride. I think he finished 10th or 11th overall. But, you know, that was – it was a pretty big, ambitious year for Rally. Um, Action Hoggins – Hoggins Berman Action, their goal is all about just getting these young U23 guys to, as Axel Merck said, get their butt kicked at the world tour level so they can see what that level is like, see what that effort is like. And to a certain degree, I think it was success on that end, but you know, yeah, this is a world tour race now. So it is, it is bona fide world tour teams, big stars, Tade Bojakar, uh, Egan Bernal, Julian Alaphilippe, Peter Sagan, the, the list goes on of winners of really top level riders, uh, battling it out on the California roads. And, and, you know, they want to win. That's that. I think that's the coolest thing, you know, 10, 15, well, 10, 11, 12 years ago when the race was in February, I, I remember seeing some of the World Tour riders would come over here and it was, oh, it was so early in the season that like they were going out and partying. They were – I mean they wanted to win but it wasn't that big a deal. But now like like people really want to want to win this race. Yeah, I think February in California is more of a shopping trip than a, a racing <laughs> adventure back in those days. But it sounds like uh, we're swapping out youth of America for the youth of the globe. I mean, I think I read one stat, Peter Sagan, the oldest stage winner in this year's tour at 29. Everybody else, I think, is in their late teens, their prepubescent. Yeah, and we've seen this dynamic play out in the overall before where like Julian Alaphilippe won the overall in 2016 before he really started winning a lot at the World Tour level. Peter Sagan has been coming here since he was, I believe, like 20 years old and winning stages. So the Tour of California has been this testing ground, this almost laboratory for young World Tour stars to test themselves. And again, we saw that this year. Tade Pojakar wins the overall in a battle with Sergio Higita. Pojakar's 20. Higita, I believe, is 21. Um, you know, a lot of the, the just the young riders, I mean, Bernal won it last year. It was his first big major world tour stage race win as he, you know, progressed up there. But boy, this year, it really seemed like the dynamic was taken to a new level, specifically by Quickstep, or Dakunik Quickstep. So Dakunik Quickstep usually comes into this race well organized for the sprints with veteran riders who are ironing out the kinks in their lead out trains for the big marquee sprinter. And this year, yeah, okay, they had Fabio Jakobsen. He's 21. He's kind of a sprinter of the future. But instead, they had these uh, big, strong domestiques in Jasper Asgreen, who you talked to at Flanders, and then uh, Remy 
uh, oh, right, Cavagna, who's this big Frenchman. And they just, they kind of unleashed the domestiques, the guys who are used to pulling the Peloton around and just said, hey, guys, go get in breakaways. Go see what you can do. And uh, Askreen wins stage two and Cavagna wins stage three. And, you know, then we saw, oh, Ivan, uh, Ivan Garcia win a stage into Ventura, his first World Tour victory. So we saw a number of young riders take their first ever World Tour wins, which, which is cool to see because it's like, oh, all these guys are going to blossom into big studs three, four, five years from now or sooner. And, you know, you've, you follow them in California and this is, this is like the laboratory. This is where they get to try new stuff out, which is cool to see. Yeah, it's interesting how, how effective Quickstep has been in recruiting. They have such a top quality kind of A team, but their B team is just as lethal. And it's also interesting to see how these young riders can win at a top level at such a young age. Um, which are yeah. 20, 20 years old. I think the youngest, youngest world tour winner ever since the world tour was created uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And you're seeing riders, I think winning younger than ever before. But then, then we're also seeing on the other end of that spectrum, seeing riders burn out earlier than before. We've seen a few cases like that with Kittle pulled the plug in his career. I think he just turned 31 last this past month. Uh, Peter Kenick in his late twenties, early thirties, burned out because the demands of the sport are so intense. Kind of some interesting angles right there. But, I mean, come on, Fred. The big story was what happened with our, our buddy TJ, man. What happened? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so that was, uh, that was a tough one to watch. TJ Van Garderen. That's a whole separate podcast. Yeah, that boy, that's a whole therapy session right there. I mean, TJ, yeah, he came in as one of the favorites. And um, kudos to him for going on the offensive in this second stage, getting into that front group, riding really aggressively. He didn't get the stage win. Askreen got that. Who, boy, Askreen. I mean, he's just second place of Flanders, climbing with the best of them. I asked him, I was like, hey, Casper, you know, did you do like an altitude camp or anything? He's like, oh, no, I am from Denmark. It is flat. I never climb mountains. I'm just, I'm just going for it. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> okay, okay, Askreen. But so TJ gets the stage win, which puts EF in the defensive, or TJ gets the jersey, stage two, puts EF on the defensive, which is fine. They have the strongest team there on paper with oh, Rigo Uran and Lawson uh, Craddock and Lachlan Morton, some of these real heavy hitters. And they do a good job of defending it. Obviously, there was the weird kerfuffle on stage four into Morro Bay where, yeah, okay, they probably should have lost. <laughs> they probably should have lost the jersey then. But the uh, race jury smiled on them. I wrote a column about it and everyone hated on me. It was just delightful. Everyone, everyone was hating you, Fred. Yeah. You were the bane of the <laughs> social media. I don't care. I, that's the way I feel. Sorry, people. Deal with it. But TJ cracked on stage six on the Mount Baldy climb, and he cracked before it really got hard. I mean, it, look, it's a long, hard climb, but it's those last 3K that are super steep and have these switchbacks. And TJ cracked before they got there, and he cracked when it was actually Askren, this big cobbles guy who was pulling on the front. Which leads me to believe that, you know, maybe he just, he obviously just didn't have it coming into this race. Um, and instead, it was his teammate, Sergio Higuita, who attacks and goes on to have this slugfest with Pojacar, finishes second place. But man, I have to wonder if, did EF back the wrong horse in the race? I mean, hey, kudos to Van Garder for taking the jersey early, but that made EF have to spend a lot of energy and resources defending that jersey. And I wonder, you know, if they'd have known that he gets which they had to have known that he's this just amazing climber who could have like throw some real haymakers on that big long climb. You, you know, you have to wonder if 
had they let someone else have the jersey, wait for Baldy, and then unleash this Colombian wunderkind if he would have been able to win. I mean, we'll never know. A second guessing, being the armchair quarterback is something that we can always do. But I guess if you knew Higita was that good, yeah, you wonder why uh, he wasn't the protected rider. But hey, sometimes the race just dictates itself. And like I said, Van Garderen going on the attack and taking the jersey early, uh, that was him him being aggressive. But yeah, he just didn't have it. I don't know. That was it. He just didn't have it. Is is this the slipstream education first curse of the Tour of California, Fred? I don't think the team's ever won, right? They've been on the podium, I think, literally countless numbers of times. Just, but I've never, uh, they've never can pull off the biggest race in America. What's up with that? Yeah, they've been second place at this race six times out of 14 editions. They've been third place another two or three times. Um, ah, it's tough. It's brutal. I mean, they're America's World Tour team. This is America's World Tour race. They do seem to be cursed. I Honestly, I personally thought this year was the year they were going to break that curse because, oh, they just had the strongest team and they had good, you know, good riders. And, you know, once that jury ruling came down, I was like, ah, well, that's it. You know, they're going to be able to win. But, um, yeah, just, you know, TJ couldn't do it. And and the GC was close. And really, Hoodie, it just came down to this Pojicar kid. And, you know, I, I feel like he's a kid that we're going to be talking about for years to come because, you know, he showed that he was really strong on the final push to Baldi, but he was also just so smart. He, you know, look, going back and watching the replay and then having him break down the tape for us, like he gave us this great analysis, even though his English is not great. And basically saying, you know, Higita drops him and distances him and he keeps Higita in check. Bennett, Bennett's chasing behind and he says, well, I burned my match to get up to Higita and I didn't pull, which forced Higita to pull, which kept Bennett at bay. And then he did some attacks, some surges and slowdowns and surges and basically got Higita to attack into the final corner, which he knew was a tight final corner. So Higita had to go wide and Pojikar went kind of slow into the final corner, took the inside line that sprinted for the win, 10 second time bonus. And that was it. That was all he needed. And so it was actually really interesting that this kid is 20 years old, but he has this racing, he seems to have this racing intellect that is that of a, of a KG veteran. Yeah, he's impressive. I was talking to Machine Fernandez, the UAE director at uh, the Tour Down Under uh, in January. I talked to I talked to Pojakar because everyone was talking about you know this Slovenian who really last year at the Tour of Avenir single handedly beat the Colombians. I mean, the Colombians have been dominating the Tour of Avenir really almost for much, much almost this half dec- past decade. And uh, Pojakar went there last year, didn't have much of a team, single handedly slayed the Colombians. And then he comes into uh, racing in Europe for his first year as a Neo Pro. And then he won the Volta Garve, which it's, you know, it's a little five-day race down there in Portugal in February. But he actually beat back some heavy hitters. And then I think he was top 10 at the Volta Pais Vasco. So everyone inside that organization is saying this guy has the chops to really be able to develop into, you know, maybe a Grand Tour rider. We don't know. A lot of times that's too much pressure to put on a young rider. You can see how that kind of pressure almost can backfire sometimes with expectations so high. But uh, this guy, another guy, another Slovenian, we got uh, Pogacar winning in the Tour of California, got Roglic leading the Giro d'Italia. Uh, that, you know, these guys are, uh, they're, they're like, you know, obviously having a huge impact on the world tour right now. Pogachar, not a ski jumper. Confirmed, not a ski jumper. Uh, Roglic, I heard somewhere, maybe he's jumped on skis, potentially. Ski jump? I don't know. Yeah, the, the funny thing is, even even people inside the Jumbo Visma 
organization make that same joke. I'm working on a little story about, you know, what which world is really like behind the scenes. And everyone's like, hey, did you know he used to be a ski jumper? Oh, <laughs> uh, you heard it here, folks. Heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Roglic confirmed <laughs> ski jumper. Well, Hoodie, that was it at the Tour of California. Uh, it was a good race. You know, men's and women's race, Anna Van Der Bregen, dominant in the women's race. Uh, really impressive to see what she's able to pull off, not just winning the first stage, but single-handedly defending it on a couple of days. And, um, you know, I wish I had more insight from her, but uh, she was not present at many of the press conferences. And so I don't really, I don't know. I, I assume she's happy with winning. Um, but, you know, we're going to wait and see her later. So before we get out of here, I have an interview with Lindsey Goldman from the Hoggins Berman Superman team about the state of women's racing and some of the perspectives she has on how and how not to grow uh, women's racing. So let's hear from Lindsay. Okay, Fred Dreyer here at stage two of the MGN Women's Tour of California. I'm really pleased to be joined right now by Lindsay Goldman. Lindsay is a racer on the Hoggins Berman Supermint team. You're also the team owner and team manager. You're a person who knows a lot about pro cycling. And Lindsay, the reason I really wanted to talk to you is that you were, I believe it was the most courageous rider yesterday. Yes, that's correct. So you're the most courageous rider yesterday, and you're in the press conference, and um, someone asked you a question, and you had a really eloquent answer. And the question was about this proposed bill in California, which would require sporting events that use public roadways to have an equal number of racing days for both genders. Basically, it's a, a, a law that would force the Tour of California to have an equal number of um, races for women as for men. And so before we start with this interview, I was hoping you could t take me through the answer you gave yesterday, because again, I thought it was, you, you brought up a lot of interesting points. Thank you. Uh, it was definitely a spur of the moment thing. I finished a stage at a very difficult race and then was asked a difficult question at a post-race press conference, so slightly stressed in the moment, but uh, fortunately I had some thoughts on the matter, so it was pretty easy to just speak extemporaneously on it. And my thought is, while I applaud efforts to push for equality in sport, and I obviously as a female cyclist believe that we deserve equal opportunities to shine and show what we can do, I think using a legal system and using existing laws to try and manipulate the race into providing equality is a backwards approach. I think you need to focus on it from a business perspective, which is how can we make it financially feasible for there to be equal number of days for the women? And that really, there's a lot of elements to that. It's, you know, we need to have spectators that want to come out and watch. We need to have cities that are able to provide the time to have road closures to run two races. We need to have every single expense that goes into putting on a race covered somehow, and that needs to be driven by an economic model that makes sense, and that comes from having business behind the proposal that is profitable for everybody involved. And without that, just simply asking for equal days or finding a way to legally require it, you can't get blood from a stone. If there's not money and resources to make it possible, then there's not money and resources to make it possible. And all of the wishing, hoping, and legally mandating all that's going to do is effectively shut down the race. And some people would argue if there's money to do it for the men's race, then they should be able to put some of that towards the women. And while I think that's not entirely inaccurate, 
I also believe that men and women cycling are different businesses. They're different products. We're selling different things. The people that are watching my racing are different than the people that are watching the men's racing. In a lot of cases, there's a different fan base. There's different consumers. And to treat them as completely equal ignores a lot of the nuances in either of the businesses and things that we could manipulate to be more lucrative and be more successful as a business. We're ignoring by seeing them as one. So in saying, you know, take some of the men's stages and give them to the women or take some of that money and allocate it towards the women, there's a reason why economically it's existed that way and has been built that way as a race. And until we can really drive the fans out to watch the women and to demand more women's racing, it's difficult to tell the the race organization you have to do it this way simply because there's some laws that can be manipulated to force that. Lindsay, that's really interesting perspective and it's one that I haven't heard voiced so eloquently um from a member of the Peloton. And, you know, it sounds like you are speaking from your own experiences in trying to sell sponsorship around this team, trying to get more fans to follow the team. You know, take me through this process. You have this team, it's two years old. What has your process been like as as a businesswoman building this team, both from a, a sponsorship and just a business background? Well, I got extremely lucky. When I originally founded the team with my business partner at the time, we went out and we pitched probably almost two dozen companies and tried to get them to come on board as a title sponsor. We started with nothing. So we had this idea of a team, we even had some riders, we had some product sponsors in the industry, but we didn't have a title sponsor. And for a while, my brilliant plan was to front the money myself, which is a terrible plan, don't ever do that. But in the process of trying to find sponsors, I had to go to these companies and pitch them to try and convince them to give us money to run a team. And in that, from my business background doing proposals for companies, I realized that in each of these propositions to these companies, I needed to provide value to them. Like, why should they give me money? There needed to be something in, the, in it for them, and it basically needed to be almost entirely about them, because there is a, a philanthropy aspect, but the reality is businesses are not in it to feel good. They're in it to accomplish some sort of goal that matters to them. So I had to identify the value for them and try and convey it to them in a way that was compelling and get them to say yes. And it took a lot of rejection. It was a terrible time. I did not sleep at all. I've never been rejected so much in my life. I got really good at being rejected, actually. I'm still good at it now. But it took uh, Hoggins Berman. That's when I finally had some success. And connecting with Steve Berman and his desire to support basically the underdog. You know, as a law firm, Hoggins Berman is a class action law firm that supports the interests of consumers and defends them against corporations and injustices on a broader scale. In cycling, he supports under 23 men and now women because he saw them as disadvantaged and not receiving the same opportunities as other people in the sport. So it was advantageous for him to support the team and it's good for the firm to have their name attached to something that's philanthropic and in this case, you know, he's actually able to make a difference in the sport, it feels good to him, etc. So we were able to create value for him and that's been my objective with all the sponsors is to identify whether it's an industry sponsor or a non-industry sponsor looking at what do you want to get out of this relationship? Because if I don't give it to you, you might give me something this year, but next year you won't. And as a business model, it's not helpful if we don't create meaningful relationships that last from year to year. So that's been the driving philosophy for the life of the team. And, you know, I, I wonder behind the scenes of other teams if that's how they approach it or how they manage to make sponsorship happen. But I see the number of sponsors that leave the sport, especially non-industry sponsors that come in and then take their money away. And, you know, I wonder if there were opportunities to create value that would have kept them in the sport that were overlooked because we're focusing on other things as a sport. 
That's another really interesting and eloquent answer, and I want to dive into a couple of points that you brought up. One was this uh, pitching sponsors and trying to sell them on the idea of women's cycling and being rejected. I'm curious, what were some of the elements of specifically women's cycling that, that presented hurdles for sponsors to get involved, and what were some of the sticking points about women's cycling that made sponsors want to get involved? For the most part, I was approaching companies that only had a very high-level understanding of cycling, let alone women's cycling. Um, I was trying to use business relationships that I had previously or approaching companies where I knew the CEO was a cyclist or we had some other angle where we could approach them from a personal perspective, but also play to, obviously, their interests as a business. And it was a really difficult sell because, I mean, the real question is, what value can I provide you? And as a cycling team, that's hard to answer. You know, the traditional thing in cycling is I'm going to put your name on my jersey. But the reality is that doesn't really get a lot of visibility. And people are still really into that. And if you want your logo on my jersey, I'll definitely do it for you if we work out a deal. But I've, as a rider, I put two numbers on today and I covered 100% of all of the back pockets with those numbers. So it's like sponsors that, you know, are thinking about the traditional sponsorship model. I'm going to put my logo on you and it's going to be out there. That doesn't work. I don't really know of anyone who's made that a selling point successfully on a long-term basis and showed a return on investment for that. So trying to break out of the traditional sponsorship model, provide options for companies that were appealing and then convince them to hand over their money was really difficult, regardless of woman or man. Um, cycling is a tough sport to sell, especially if people don't understand the sport. Because, I mean, I look at my own parents. For a long time, they'd watch me race, and they'd see me on the front, and they'd be like, you're winning! Explaining the, the nuances of, actually, I'm working for so-and-so, and I blah, blah, blah. Like, that's really difficult for consumers to appreciate and learn. It's like getting people to watch chess. It's not interesting. And so convincing a company that not only should they give us money to do this, but the consumers will also be interested in this thing. It was, there were a lot of things that made it really difficult to sell. And ultimately the success I had was with someone who was already involved in cycling. So I didn't have to go over the hurdle of explaining why cycling or why women cycling. For Steve Berman, women were a natural follow on from doing an under 23, because if he's concerned about helping underrepresented parties in the sport, women were a perfect opportunity. Let's get back to the uh, discussion around advocacy for, um, you know, advancing women's cycling. If legislating it and forcing some of the bodies to enact a change isn't the best way forward in your mind, um, how should women's cycling go about trying to break through some of these barriers, some of these bar barriers around um, lack of TV coverage, lack of race days, you know, lack of funding? In your mind, what are the strategies that women's cycling should follow to try and grow? You have to go to the grassroots level. The only way to drive any any interest is to create demand. There's if you don't have any demand, then nothing will like I look at Netflix, they keep putting out more and more shows. And I don't watch a whole lot of TV, but I watch some of them. And I have to imagine they're putting out more and more shows because people want to watch them. Netflix, however, is not clamoring to put out cycling shows. Why? Because nobody's asking to watch it. So, I mean, that's that's the whole pinnacle of demand. If you don't, if there's no demand, then you don't need to supply the product. So we need to find a way to create demand. And for me, I see creating demand through 
connecting with people that would want to consume women's cycling, getting them to be a part of it, having them understand it. You know, for so many people, cycling is that weird sport that that person in your on your street is doing, and they're like in your way as you're trying to drive to work, and it's annoying. Like, why would you want to go watch this? Like, what and what is, what is bike racing? Like, to the typical person, that's this, this attitude is so either cycling is foreign or they're uninterested in it or it is seen as a nuisance so creating demand where people are like wow that's actually really interesting like watching a crit is kind of fascinating oh you mean these people race multiple times throughout the season in the country like i should want to watch that we have to find a way to tap into that and generate that demand so that if a race is happening like today a stage at tour of california for the women happened but if no one is asking to watch it, then why would a company spend money and effort to broadcast it? And I think there is a growing demand, and as that demand grows, it will become loud enough and obvious enough that you know business will occur to meet that demand, to live stream races, to get more spectators out. But until people are asking for it, it's very difficult to then, as a cyclist or a team owner, say, like, you've got to provide it. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point there, and that's um, you know, creating incentives for these stakeholders who have a financial stake in the sport to spend money on it. I look at what Flanders Classics is doing in Belgium, which is putting the women's races very close to the men's races because they feel like one plus one equals three in that scenario where there's fans that have come up for the men's race. When you stage the women's race by itself, ah, there's not as many fans there, but if you stage them both really close together, maybe there's going to be more fans. You can utilize the TV to televise both and keep your expenses low and I do look at you know ASO there's a lot of news around them deciding not to televise some of these big women's races and I see it as a missed opportunity because I personally like to watch these women's races but I don't know how much demand there is out there and so I, I agree with you it's about creating demand so that you can go to some of these stakeholders and say you know look this is beneficial to you you could buy you know you could have a sponsor there could be revenue coming in um, I just don't know how you how one goes about doing that but I feel like there needs to be more people like you out there who are looking at it as a chicken and egg type thing of creating incentives to get companies in the sport. I think the most difficult thing is, as a professional cyclist, I feel like I exist in a bubble. Like, I'm here at this big, huge event, and it's amazing. And there are spectators lining the roads, even for the women's stages, and it's awesome to ride past them. But we come back here, and we're in our bubble. And we basically exist in a world that is very insular. So in this professional cycling bubble, we don't at least in my experience, spend a lot of time looking outward or at other areas of the sport outside of the top level of competition. It's all what happened in the men's race today, what happened in the women's race, what happened in that other race over in Europe. And so two years ago, I realized, you know, in talking to Steve Berman about what we needed to do to make the team even more impactful, that we needed to do something to drive this demand. So it was a very small step but we created an ambassador program where we allowed women of any age, I think the, the bottom limit is 12, you have to be at least 12, but you can apply to be part of our ambassador program, and each ambassador is paired with a rider on the team, and that ambassador becomes part of the team. Like They get team kits, they get sunglasses, they get a whole bunch of team gear, they get products from our sponsors. They, I mean, they are basically 
like members of our team in a lot of ways. They're out riding and racing in our kits. We even created a USA Cycling Club so they could be licensed to be amateur members of our team. But in doing that, we got women who are not racing, who are not really even remotely close to competitive and have no interest in that. Any woman who wanted to be a cyclist in any capacity, even if it was, you know, right now we have a, a woman who's a bike messenger. She wanted to be part of the program, and in doing that, it was an opportunity for, I, I wanted my riders at least, to break out of the bubble and look elsewhere in the sport for ways to connect with women. So there are women riding bikes all over, and then there are professional cycling women, and they weren't interacting at all, but I wanted to make it so that if we take the time to learn about these women, figure out, like, what are you doing on bikes? Like, what motivates you? What freaks you out about getting on a bike? Like, what do you enjoy about it? And, you know, they get to, those women get to look into our world and they get to ask us questions. We have a Facebook group where there's ongoing dialogue about, you know, pro-cycling questions. And, you know, I got a question the other day in our group. One of the, the ambassadors was asking, you know, hey, I just joined a team and there's men on the team. You know, what are your thoughts? Has anyone ever dated a team member? And it's stuff like we get to share these experiences, but ultimately what it's doing is expanding our pro cycling bubble to include women who are not in that and make it so that they're part of our world, we're part of theirs. I know more about what women across America are doing in cycling. It makes them feel more included. And ultimately, it has driven them to do things like come out to our races. They want to try our sponsored products. They're excited about the team and they understand the world of pro cycling better enough that they want to consume it more. They want to make an effort to buy the live streams that USA Crits is putting out and that Armed Forces is putting out next weekend. And I think if every single pro cycling team made more of an effort to reach out to the people that they are trying to appeal to ultimately, even if they don't realize it, then it would be more inclusive and those same people would be clamoring more to see the races, come out and watch them in person and pay for live streams. Your team does have a UCI license. You're a UCI team. Um, you're not one of the biggest teams here at the Amgen Tour California. There's the, some of the Women's World Tour teams here. But you guys are no slouches. You have the reigning uh, U.S. Criterium champion, Leanne Ganser, on your team. And uh, some other very strong women. You know, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of talk about creating things from women's cycling like uh, mandatory minimum salaries and mandatory minimum expenses for um, women's for women's UCI teams and we talked a bit about this the other day it sounds like you know you kind of have mixed feelings on that having to require you know pass rules that require UCI teams like yours to have a number of these expenses yes I I have a lot of feelings about that um, I, I will say starting off all of my riders receive a salary that's important to me from the beginning from day one of this team we've allocated our budget so that every single rider regardless of experience level receives a salary and in our first year and then again this year we also do equal salaries for all riders on the team so I don't care if you come in with 50,000 UCI points and you are the reigning world champion or if it is your first time on a pro team you get the same salary because ultimately my view is everybody contributes a role on the team that is meaningful whether you are the sprinter bringing home the podium or you are the first wheel in the lead out and end up finishing 52nd so we do salaries for the riders but my concern in mandating minimum salaries is that it will effectively shut out a lot of the existing UCI teams because I know my team's budget can't stretch any further to accommodate salaries beyond what we pay. You know, I'm a rider on my team. I get a salary from that. It is nothing that I could live off of unless I wanted to live in a refrigerator box under an overpass. But the reality is that is all my budget can afford while we are also still trying to go to races and have adequate staff to accommodate everything we need to do with those races. And I think a lot of women's teams are in the same position. If you mandate salaries at a certain level, you will fold the team because 
in mandating it, that does not make the money appear. You can tell me I have to pay everybody X amount, but that doesn't mean suddenly Hoggins Berman is now going to give me that much. And I think the real issue is, well, I appreciate riders feeling like that equality is necessary. Uh, and I'm, you know, I wish it was the case that the business was there to support that already, that women would naturally get paid that much and they deserve it. We have not created an economic system in cycling that supports that. So it's a, it's once again, it's using you know, requirements and legislation and mandates to make something happen that unfortunately isn't economically supported. You can't make money appear. And you know, with the UCI setting for salary minimums, I think it's for five teams next year, and then there's a follow-on each year for more teams. The UCI has not actually mandated that sponsors give us more money. So. You know, my team will not be one of those ones that is doing the equal or the minimum salaries because we don't have the money. That's not going to happen. And I think a lot of teams will be in the same boat. And I really wish the, the women who are pushing for this understood the struggle on the other side where, you know, I know every other women's team manager wishes they could give the riders more. It's not like we're holding back. It's not like Hoggins Berman is saying, you know, actually, we just don't feel like it. That's what the budget is. That's what has been allocated. That's what the sponsorships have allowed for. And to, to just demand more out of fairness, it will, I think it'll do more harm than good. What are services or help that you, uh, the UCI could provide to women's teams and women's riders that would help them through this struggle? Uh, this applies to men as well. I think the biggest thing that the UCI needs to do across the board, because uh, I know last year and in previous years and in coming years, men's teams are losing sponsors as well. I think the biggest thing they need to do is educate teams and team management on how to manage sponsorships, how to pursue sponsorships, how to get as much value out of the sponsorship as possible and to make the sponsors feel like it's a good investment and to teach teams how to approach sponsors, get money, and the UCI needs to create a structure that helps deliver more value. So, you know, we've talked about delivering or having demand where people want to consume cycling. The UCI needs to do its part in helping us build a sport that's appealing, that, you know, create race structures that are consumable make it so that these races are understandable to people that are not so in the know in the sport and that's it. Like a stage race to a typical American sports consumer would be, I mean it took me like two years of doing stage races before I could even get all the competition straight. So there's things that we could be doing from a legislative perspective within the sport to make it more consumable and then also helping teams, instead of telling me how high my socks need to be or what aero bars I can use on my TT bike, why don't you focus on telling me how I can monetize my team, deliver value to the sponsors so they want to keep coming back and provide something that helps me get the money I need to then give better salaries. I really appreciate you making some time and uh, yeah, we're going to be keeping our eyes on the Hoggins Berman Superman team out there. Thank you very much for your time. We're back from the Lindsey Goldman interview. Uh, Hoodie, I got to let you get out of here to get to your um, uh, glorified couch bed or whatever they have you. So it's a pile of rocks with a with a, sh a sheet over it or whatever they have you uh, sleeping on tonight, right? Well, unfortunately, we're, we're, the hotel is right next to this giant bush, which is like just oozing pollen into my room. So I've, I've been on the verge of sneezing this entire podcast. So as soon as we turn this thing off, I'm going to have the biggest sneeze of my life. <laughs> oh, the very glamorous life of being an international uh, cycling journalist. Let me tell you, folks, there it is, bad hotels and sneezing. Well, my thanks to you, Andrew Hood, and we would love your feedback on what all the listeners 
from the listeners what we talked about today, you can email us at webletters at outdoor, pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on Velnews.com. Subscribe to the Velnews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Velnews at Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine. Follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash Velnews. Velnews podcast produced by Velnews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Velnews podcast are those of the individual. And as always, it's the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing soul drums by Bernard Purdy to lead you out. Thanks again.